You're listening to Behold Diana. This is episode seven. Chapter 10. The wheels of the Canadian Pacific Airlines DC-8 touched the runway at Toronto International Airport with a thud. I gave Rosemary's hand a tight squeeze. Well, we're here, I grinned. The careful enunciation of the stewardess came over the cabin speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, for your safety and comfort, will you please remain in your seats until the aircraft has come to a complete stop in front of the terminal building. We ask you to continue to observe the no-smoking sign. We do hope you've had a pleasant flight. Thank you for flying Canadian Pacific. The microphone clicked off. Rosemary and I sat silently in our seats as the plane taxied toward the terminal. But before we came to a stop, passengers were standing up, reaching for coats and hats that were stowed on the overhead rack. The babble of conversation billowed above the dying whir of the engines. Do we have everything? Rosemary prompted. I nodded as I extricated my black patent leather hat box from under the seat. We stood up and headed for the exit. The two immaculately groomed stewardesses stood on either side of the doorway as the passengers departed. Each girl bade a personal farewell. Standing at the top of the steps, awaiting my turn to go down, I turned to Rosemary and said facetiously, Look out, Toronto. Here we come. The dark-haired stewardess overheard my remark and giggled discreetly. I could hear Rosemary's not-so-discreet chuckle behind me as we clambered down the metal steps onto the ramp. The damp, cold air of a chilly, windy December day welcomed us with its bleak embrace. I pulled my fur-lined coat more tightly around me, and with bent head shielding me against the wind, I headed across the tarmac toward the terminal. Once inside the doorway, I stood aside to wait for Rosemary, who was slowed down by the weight of her bulky hand baggage. Side by side, we strode through the circular hallway toward the elevator that would take us to the baggage claim area. My first impression of Toronto was of antiseptic cleanliness because the terminal building was nothing short of being clinically clean. At the bottom of the escalator was a baggage carousel with a sign above it indicating that this was where the passengers from our flight should claim their personal effects. Many of our fellow passengers from the flight had already arrived and were huddling around the claim area. Each person was straining to see the top of the rubber conveyor belt that was about to spew an assortment of luggage down the ramp. As the first suitcase hurtled downward, followed by an avalanche of briefcases, suitcases, golf clubs, flight bags, hat boxes, wig boxes, matched and mismatched sets of elegant and shabby luggage, the passengers eagerly bent forward, grabbing furiously as a familiar object spun into view. For the frail, infirm, and aged, it was sometimes an impossible task, because they were neither fast nor agile enough to grab their belongings. Being the taller of the two, I was assigned to the chore. I stretched out my long arm as far as I could and grabbed wildly. Each time I scored a touchdown with a fumble, I'd quickly hand them to Rosemary, who stacked all the cases together in one large pile. There should be one more, she said. I think it's my navy blue suitcase that's missing, the one with the white straps on it. Oh, there it is, the last one off, she said. We signaled a skycap who piled our luggage on a cart and told us to follow him through a self-opening door. There was even more confusion outside, with passengers waiting for the special airport limousines others anxiously searching for relatives or friends driving their own cars. Finally, at the far end of the terminal, we spotted the airport bus that was to transport us downtown. I tipped the skycap a dollar and climbed onto the bus behind Rosemary. I handed the driver a crisp $5 bill and waited for the change. 
There was an assortment of passengers on the bus, Italians, French-Canadians, and Germans, to name a few of the languages I recognized as I squeezed my way sideways down the aisle toward two vacant seats at the rear of the bus. After about a five-minute delay, the bus headed downtown for the Royal York Hotel. We were going to luxuriate there for just one night before looking for a room more in line with our present income. We knew we'd have to get jobs pretty quickly if we were to survive more than a few days in Toronto. Wonder how far it is to the hotel, Rosemary queried. Uh, About 18 miles, I think. I don't know about you, but I'm so tired I can't wait to get to bed, Rosemary said, stifling a yawn. I glanced around the crowded bus at the other passengers, some of who were chatting unintelligibly in languages I couldn't recognize. Most of them looked equally wan and tired from the rigors of traveling. I nodded toward a group of brightly illuminated buildings to our right. I think it's the Canadian National Exhibition. We must make a point of going there next summer. I hear it's great. I offered Rosemary a cigarette, but she shook her head in refusal. I lit one for myself. Just as I had inhaled the last puff, the bus lurched forward and screeched to a stop. Royal York Hotel, shouted the driver. There had already been a sudden resurgence as the crowd moved toward the exit at the front of the bus. We remained in our seats until everyone else was out. We scrambled down, clutching our assorted hand baggage, and a maroon, jacketed bellboy from the hotel asked us if we had reservations. When we said yes, he asked us to identify our luggage from the remaining suitcases, and he told us he'd meet us up in the lobby in five minutes. He pointed to a heavy revolving door, advised us to go straight down the flight of marble steps and up the main elevators. Silently, we were whisked into the splendors of the main lobby. We went through the usual formalities of registration and were shown to our room in the new wing. It was 10.15pm. We tipped the bellboy, locked the door, and were both snug in our couch-type beds within the next half hour. For us, this great hotel was the ultimate in luxury. The following morning was spent perusing the Globe and Mail classified advertising sections, first for a room, then for some sort of employment. We needed both. I opted for a room on Bernard Street that was not spacious, but clean and central. We moved in at about 5pm. For the next couple of weeks, I held an assortment of temporary jobs as either a typist or secretary, but I decided to look for something more permanent. With my legal stenographic background, I felt qualified to apply for a position with the Juvenile and Family Court located on Jarvis Street. I had heard through the secretarial grapevine that they needed an additional court stenographer. I felt the work would be interesting and varied. On the day of my interview, I arrived promptly at 9am, dressed in a beige winter coat and matching suit with dark brown accessories. My hair was piled high on my head in curls. I reported to the personnel office where I was interviewed by a man of about 40 who was tall and lean with graying hair. He outlined in great detail the duties of a court stenographer. He held the view that accuracy was the prime requisite. After all, he explained, the fate of some kid could well hinge on the correctness of those notes. There were three judges assigned to this session, and I would work with each. Judge Grudeff is presiding today, he said. I'd like to try you out during an actual court session. It's the only way I know of knowing if you can handle the assignment. That's fine, I said. Here's a steno pad and a good supply of pencils, he said. This way, he motioned. Ready to bring all your belongings. You won't be coming back to this section. I picked up my coat from the back of the chair and followed him into the main courtroom. The judge was sitting impassively on the bench, listening intently to testimony. At the table below the bench was the court stenographer, a plump brunette in her late 30s. She was so engrossed in recording every word that she didn't even glance up as I was taken into the courtroom and shown to a table on the judge's left. A distraught mother sat in the witness box. Her son, I soon learned, was charged with indecent exposure. He appeared to embody all the characteristics of honesty in his bearing and manner of speech. Clearly, he had been well chosen for the job. Uh, about ten o'clock, stammered the boy. He was about fourteen, scrawny yet tall for his age. Fifteen minutes later, the hearing was completed. The mother in her testimony explained how she was the sole supporter of the boy and three other children. Sole supporter because although the husband lived with them, he was unemployed and a chronic alcoholic. She testified further that he had constantly beaten up both her and the children. 
The judge had disposed of the case by recommending psychiatric help for the boy. He bound him over into the custody of his mother, who let him sobbing from the courtroom. I began my note-taking with the next case, one of petty larceny. This was followed by one of vandalism, and a third in which a mother complained to the judge that her 15-year-old daughter was in need of care because she considered her a delinquent. At noon, the judicial examinations were adjourned until the following day. Miel stood as the judge rose to leave for his chambers. The personnel officer was at my side. After you've had lunch, report to the stenographer's room right there, he said, pointing to a partitioned area. After a quick sandwich, I headed for the steno pool to transcribe my notes. Several secretaries were already there, pounding away at their typewriters, and I didn't feel it was necessary to introduce myself, so I sat down at a vacant typewriter and began to type the transcripts for the first of many sessions I was to document during my stint as Diana court stenographer. About a week later, I was invited to attend the annual Christmas party for the staff of the family court. I stood alone in the gaily decorated basement room where the party was being held. Because I had only been on the staff for a short time, I hardly knew anyone. There were small groups of detectives, police officers, and lawyers, accented by a sprinkling of secretaries, but it was mostly a male affair. May I get you a fresh drink? I looked around. I recognized one of the detectives who I had seen around the courthouse, but did not know him personally. Yes, I'd love another, I said, handing him my empty glass, which held melted ice cubes. I'm drinking Canadian Club and water. He headed toward the bar, clutching our two glasses, and I again became preoccupied. My thoughts were focused on an earlier telephone conversation I'd had with Rosemary. Her aunt apparently was furious at our having moved to Toronto together. Rosemary's Christmas card had reached her postmarked Toronto. It hadn't taken her aunt very long to locate us. She had made all kinds of dire threats, including one of revealing my true identity to the Toronto Police Department. Just what I needed, I thought, in my present job. The detective was returning with our drinks. There, how's that? Not too strong, I hope, he said, handing me the glass. No, it's just fine, I smiled, taking a sip. By the way, what's your name? Mine's John. I'm Diana. I'm the new addition to the court stenographers, I volunteered. Let me take you around and introduce you to some of the boys. A gorgeous gal like you shouldn't be standing all alone, he winked. The rest of the evening I spent moving from group to group, really getting to know the staff. Rosemary's aunt, true to her words, sent photographs and descriptions of Rosemary and me to the Toronto Police Department. Contrary to general belief, the law sometimes does move rapidly. Soon after they received my picture, I was summoned to the personnel office. My heart was pounding. The personnel officer came right to the point. There seems to be some discrepancy in your signed application, he said, scowling. We have been advised by a reliable person that your real name is Clifford Boylow. Is that correct? Yes, it is, I said quietly. There was a silence. I continued. I feel under the circumstances I should tender my resignation. The personnel officer breathed a sigh of relief. He really didn't want this sort of thing to hit the papers, and he accepted my resignation forthwith. I was asked to go with the detectives. They asked me about my relationship with Rosemary, which I reiterated was purely platonic, as if to verify my statement. They drove me to our room on Bernard Street and questioned Rosemary. She bore out all the information I had given them. No arrest was made. They made it quite clear that no charges were to be laid, but it was merely a formal investigation. Rosemary, of course, said she had no intentions of returning west. Chapter 11 
Driving to work on a particular morning in my newly acquired car, I thought of an amusing quotation from Elizabeth Mann Borghese. Rosemary had found it in a cookbook, and it read, The annelid worm spends its youth and adolescence in maleness. At the zenith of maturity, it switches to femaleness. Maybe you're related to the annelid worm, she had joked. I was heading, as usual, toward the downtown core of the city. This particular Monday morning, a call from the supervisor of the Underwood Girls had sent me in the direction of Young Street, where I was to work for two weeks as a temporary stenographer. Once ensconced in the office behind a pastel-colored electric typewriter, my thoughts again turned to taking drastic steps to become a full-fledged woman. In short, I wanted to become a sexually functioning female because I was sick of the facade, the nagging fear of discovery constantly haunting me. The real problem lay right here in Canada. Where did one go for a sex change operation? Where did one find a doctor or team of doctors willing to perform the necessary complicated surgery? Just where and how did one save the necessary few thousand dollars on a legal stenographer's salary working on temporary assignments, it was impossible. This morning, despite an aura of ladylike gentility, I felt very unsure of myself. The offices were spacious, well-lighted, and elegant, and the opulence of the reception area, with its deep green wool-pile carpeting and ornate antique receptionist's desk, impressed me. Within the inner offices, the three law partners had their private suites. The clatter of the secretary's typewriters permeated the plush silence. Nearby, from a giant switchboard, came the constant chatter of the operator as she plugged and unplugged electrical leads for incoming and outgoing calls. The office I was assigned to was at the end of a long, thickly carpeted corridor. It adjoined a room used for client conferences and was about as large as a small apartment kitchen. My job for the following two weeks was to take dictation and type contracts for my boss, who I discovered specialized in corporate law. For the next eight hours, I was Diana, legal secretary. I was allowed a one-hour lunch break and a 15-minute coffee break each morning and afternoon. Business, I observed, must be good because the pile of contracts to be typed was mountainous. There was a contract for the incorporation of a chartered accountancy firm that had been in business for several months. Their attached financial statement was healthy. In contrast, heading for declared bankruptcy, was an export company that, through mismanagement, had not survived in the competitive business jungle. Yes, sir, it will be ready in about 10 minutes, I replied to Mr. Johnson's intercom query as to when the incorporation documents would be ready. Eight minutes later, I was finished, and I handed the papers to Mr. Johnson, and on my return, headed for the ladies' room. The blonde buxom operator plugged in her headset and smiled warmly. She was the kind of person one could get to like. I had completed two more contracts when the phone on my desk rang. It was Rosemary. Diana, what are you doing tonight? She asked quietly. I just had a phone call from Jimmy. He wants us to make up a foursome for cocktails and then dinner. It's my only night off this week. Can you come? Sure, Rosemary, I'd love to. I'm up to my neck in work right now, but I'll call you back in about ten minutes. Are you at home? Okay. These dates, blind or otherwise, were usually arranged by Rosemary and were becoming more and more frequent. Often they were with fellows she met at work at the town, a chic supper club. Often, one of her customers would ask if she had a girlfriend to make up a double date. A couple of times, one fellow had indicated he liked two girls en trois, and we had obliged. Again, my close-knit friendship with Rosemary was put to the test. Should she follow the urgings of her aunt and completely break up our platonic attachment, or should we continue as before? This last course, due to the pressures from the police department, had become almost impossible. Therefore, it was with a great feeling of relief that Rosemary, before she went to work that evening, said, Diana, I've decided there's just not going to be any real separation. There just can't be. I swallowed hard and said, Well, what do you suggest we do? There's no way your aunt is going to let us alone until she knows we're miles apart. I felt awful having said that because the last thing in the world I wanted was to part from Rosemary. Never in my life had I met anyone with such a joy of living and with such a sincere understanding and sympathy for my unique situation. She had talked 
talked many times about the possibility of my undergoing a sex change operation abroad, and I knew if there was any way it could be done, Rosemary would be there to help me through the ordeal. I was looking in the star this afternoon before you came home, and there is this small apartment for rent. I called up about it, thinking that one of us might take that one, and the other remain here. There's no way I'll stay here when you're forced to move. If you go, I'll leave too. But I agree, we'll have to have separate places, just for a while, until the heat's off. I've arranged to go and see this place about 11.30 tomorrow morning. We'll decide more fully after I've had a look. Who knows, it might be awful. It occurred to me there was just no way Rosemary would rent it if, as she had said, it turned out to be awful. It was probably some dump on the west side of Toronto, and Rosemary liked luxury. Tomorrow would decide what course our lives would take, I thought. The crucial factor would be permanently impressing on Rosemary's aunt that our relationship was above board. Surprisingly, this was not as difficult as we'd first thought. We discovered, through a mutual friend, two furnished apartments on Madison Avenue, where we were separate yet close. After we had completed the move, we advised the vice squad of our new addresses. They were satisfied, and I never heard from her aunt again. She obviously failed to realize that we were inseparable. We just couldn't give up seeing each other. The links were too strong, especially when the friendship is based upon a need for mutual understanding, and when one of the two is living a lie to the outside world, known only to the other person. There was no way out. We'd often said only death could part us. The phone beside my bed emitted a high-pitched beep. The sunlight streamed through my bedroom window, and I sluggishly rused myself from an emotionally exhausted sleep. Heaving upward to a semi-sitting position, I rested on my left elbow, shook my head, and tried to align my thoughts. Moving from sleep to wakefulness was frightening, and I pulled up the crumpled sheet to cover my naked body as the events of last night's tragedy flooded back. Even though several hours now mercifully intervened, the horrors of the night had become an intrinsic part of myself. The phone continued its incessant beep. It had been left off the hook for several hours. I glanced at my watch and saw that it was two minutes before 12 noon. I replaced the receiver and waited for all the electronic mechanisms to return to normal. Was Rosemary really dead, or was it just a confused dream? I glanced toward the end of my bed and my questions were answered. I could see that my wrinkled slacks and blouse were stained with her blood. The dulling stupor of sleep left me as I became conscious of my anxious, rapid breathing. My heartbeat had almost tripled its normal rate. A human being harbors within himself a set of responses that determines his behavior in different situations. I began to assess my plight. The stark reality of the previous night left me distraught and disoriented. I dialed the number of Alan Willis, a prominent lawyer who was also my employer for the past six months. A repetitious ringing, no reply. He must be there, I thought. Someone would have to answer soon. At last, the phone was answered. Sorry to keep you waiting. Alan Willis's office. I recognized Al's business-like voice. He sounded flustered. Normally, I would have been in the office to answer the phones, take dictation, type letters, and generally cope with the myriad of chores that were day-to-day -day routine in a general law office. He was apparently trying not too successfully to cope without my assistance. Our conversation was short and to the point. I could sense Al's concentration as I tried to explain about the accident and convey a sense of urgency to him. Al cleared his throat, and I knew he understood. While still listening to my torrent of words, I was aware that he was already making notes, because I could hear the rustle of paper. A moment later, he asked, Which hospital was that? Northwestern General, I told him, remembering the name with difficulty. He hesitated, then said, I'll contact them right away and come straight over to your place. What's the address there? It's okay, never mind. I have it in my diary. Stay put and try to get some rest. His voice tapered off. I hung up the phone and lit a cigarette. Tears coursed down my cheeks when I thought of the public outcry that would ensue if my true identity reached the press.
press. By now I knew the accident would be widely reported. Thousands of Torontonians would have read about it with astute interest in one of the three daily newspapers, and some would be personal friends of Rosemary or myself. It was almost bound to hit the front page. Fatal automobile accidents almost always did. Al's final words as he hung up the phone struck me as almost comical. Despite the urgency of the situation, they sounded more like the advice from a doctor than from a lawyer. I crossed to the dresser and looked at my face in the mirror. I was aware of the toll the last 12 hours had taken on my appearance. As I looked, I saw stale makeup, streaked and smudged, glinting on my cheeks, eyes swollen and bright red, a puffy face, red hair tussled and matted, not a pretty sight. I could not allow myself to be seen by Al in this state of disarray. The pride I took in my appearance as a well-groomed secretary was one of my main concerns en route to complete femininity. Al had never seen me any other way. I decided to soak in a hot bath, which to me is always bliss, maybe because I never had such luxuries as a child. I pulled on my robe and tiptoed toward the bathroom because I didn't want Marge to hear me. So far she had not come near, but I didn't want her to know I was up and ask me questions. Even though she'd been well-meaning, I couldn't face her right now. Despite the heat, I shivered. In contrast to my spasmodic shivers, the water was hot as it gushed into the bathtub. How water on a stifling humid day somehow cools and refreshes. Marge always had a plentiful supply of piping hot water, both summer and winter, because she prided herself on the high standards of amenities she offered to her rumors. We as tenants said thank you by renewing our weekly tenancies time and time again. The bath was getting dangerously full, and I quickly turned off both taps. A slight odor of bleach used on a daily basis to scour the tub and toilet perfumed the air in the spotlessly clean bathroom. The window was covered by a white type of lace curtain that is commonplace even today in the French-Canadian homes of Quebec. But Marge, unlike most French-Canadians, was very conservative in her choice of colors. Everything was painted a clinical white. The only color was in the bath towels and washcloths. I needed to urinate, so I straddled my naked hips over the toilet seat and sat down. I looked at my penis and testicles in disgust. If only they would somehow disappear. I flushed the toilet and stepped into the tub. As I splashed the refreshing water over my body, I thought about the forthcoming meeting with Al. I realized I had placed myself in a position where I could become an easy target for the unscrupulous. The possibility of threats, intimidation, or even blackmail could not be ruled out as once my situation became known. As I pondered, Al was just a few miles away, heading his car west on a journey that, barring heavy traffic, would take about another 20 minutes. The humidity continued to hover around 85%. Al's destination was on a street of red brick, detached houses, one of which I called home. It was still the pride of the middle class, Anglo-Saxons, bordering on Rosedale, an exclusive area that prided itself on being home to several consular offices. This was not the time to imbibe in the luxury of a daily two-hour soak, so I stood up, stepped onto the soft bath mat, and wiped myself dry with a pale pink towel. I pulled out the plug, and the water gurgled and gushed down the drain. I crept back to the bedroom and began to dress carefully, because I instinctively felt I should look my best. I glanced in the full-length mirror. The bath had worked wonders. The swelling around my eyes had gone down considerably. I was slowly returning to normal, at least in appearance. In my entire life, I had never felt so alone and forsaken. Knowing Al was en route helped somewhat to ease my longing for someone to talk to, and these thoughts dammed up my tears. My mind was too confused to allow me to indulge in tears, and I knew I must avoid crying and put on some makeup. Until there was time to do a complete job, a light foundation, a dash of lipstick, and plenty of blush on would have to suffice. My long upper and lower lashes were so much a part of me that I sometimes wore them to bed. I knew this was no time for shading cheekbones, highlighting eyebrows, or perfuming nipples. In a way, my robing had overtones of a dress rehearsal for a drama in which the sex of the leading lady would be defined and delineated by me. Charades involved a certain amount of intelligence. I was very much aware that any failure on my part to justify what I did last night might end 
end in exposure and public scorn. I wondered how Alan Willis would take the news that his red-headed secretary, Diana, was in reality a man. In succession, I positioned my ultra-padded bra on my flat chest, stepped into my black lace, bikini panties and girdle, pulled on a pair of black mesh nylons, and wiggled into a well-tailored black dress. I remembered with a shudder that Rosemary had helped me select it just two days before. I bought it in Creed's, the Saks Fifth Avenue of Toronto. I tried to maintain my composure and remember my values. I realized I would soon be faced with not merely giving details of the nightmarish accident, but also trying to clarify who I was both to myself and to society. Not only this, but I would have to explain and give justification for my actions to Al, who was not only my lawyer, but my boss. This would be the hardest part of all. Would he understand? Al's car pulled to a stop on the street outside my house. He found a vacant parking spot into which he slid his car with ease, climbed out, and headed toward my door. My second eyelash was just being glued into place when there was a ring at the front door. I could hear Marge's steps heading toward it. I'll get it. It's for me. I shouted down the stairs. Okay, she replied nonchalantly. As I opened the door, the suave Alan Willis stepped inside. He was about five feet eight. His penetrating dark brown eyes were set off by a head of shining black hair. His immaculate brown suit looked too heavy for the heat of the day. Without wasting a moment, he asked, where's your apartment? Follow me, I replied. It's just one flight up. I climbed each stair with precision because I needed time to phrase the wording of my opening remarks. Just how did one advise one's employer that one was in reality a transsexual? I decided to tell him immediately. It was the only way I would be able to gauge his sincerity. Similarly, he would prove his manliness to me by his acceptance of my situation. I often question the virality, or should I say the suppressed homosexuality, of those men who shy away in disgust from me and others like me. It was, therefore, with relief that I showed Al into my room. After all, I thought, I was beginning to tire of role-playing on a 24-hour basis. It was bad enough acting during my leisure hours. Even before this necessity for disclosure, I'd often contemplated telling Al the truth. I told Al about being a transsexual and the tremendous strain feigning the disguise of a woman placed upon me. I explained how I had lived for a number of years physically as a man within the framework of a woman. I described in detail the years of frustration and terror I had lived through, and how I was forced to fight the moral postures of a puritanical society. When I had finished, there was utter silence. Al had turned ashen, and I could see he was completely nonplussed. He made no reply. It was the first time I, or anyone else, would ever see Alan Willis stuck for words. Eventually, after what seemed an eternity, he said, It makes no difference either to your employment with me or to my representing you as legal counsel. As you well know, I believe in individuality and feel a person should be prepared to fight and die for his beliefs. I noticed his hands were trembling as he took out a notebook. Let's forget about it now. Tell me about the accident. I swallowed hard and reported the events starting at about 1am the night before. Since you left the hospital, has anyone tried to get in touch with you? I nodded negatively. Of course, the phone was off the hook for hours. They might have. I must get to the police and hospital to tell them where you are. You should have never left the hospital, Diana, without first being discharged. I'm going to offer a substantial reward for information leading to the arrest of the driver of the car that sideswiped you, he said thoughtfully. I'll make the calls now, he said with a sense of determination in his voice. The sooner we get started, the better. He strode over to the phone and called the headquarters of the Ontario Provincial Police. After a brief pause, I heard him talking at length to an inspector, giving him details about my address, age, and place of employment. I was relieved to hear he was careful not to divulge the secret of my true sex, which I had so recently confided to him. While I waited for him to finish talking, I went to the sink to dampen a face cloth and wipe my face. The room was getting stifling hot again. I opened a nearby window and gazed out. I let out an uncontrollable, piercing scream. I saw Rosemary walking up the street toward the house. She's alive! She's alive! I yelled. Everything's all right. Al slammed down the receiver and rushed to my side. She's not there. She's dead, he said, pulling me away from the window. Get a hold of yourself. This kind of behavior 
isn't going to solve a thing. I'm going to call a doctor to give you some medication. It's all been too much for you. The strain. Everything. He went back to the phone and I slumped onto the bed. I can remember muttering, She is there. She is there. I know she is. Rosemary. Rosemary. Yes, doctor. I think she's suffering from shock. She's hysterical, as you can hear. That's 125 Madison Avenue. Her room's on the second floor. I'll look for your car and let you in. The interval between Al's call and the doctor's arrival is a blur. I can vaguely remember the doctor looking at me as I lay fully clothed on top of the bed. He rolled up my sleeve and jabbed a needle into my arm. Al was saying something about an untenable assumption that we're dealing with a simple problem. We're not. He must have told him the truth. I never really knew because I drifted off, away from all my problems. During my drug-induced sleep, the wheels of litigation, guided by Alan Willis, spun into motion. His call to the Ontario Provincial Police brought the city police, insurance appraisers, witnesses, tow truck operators, and friends of both Rosemary and myself into the picture. For the next three days, I was kept under sedation. Marge brought me cups of stealing bouillon and glasses of warm milk. The rest of the time I slept. On the third day, Al suggested I return to work as soon as possible. He felt it would help take my mind off everything. Behold Diana is produced by Borderland Pride. This episode was a reading from Behold I Am a Woman, a novel by Diana as told to Felicity Cochran. It was performed by Mark Montejunas of Fort Francis Little Theatre and recorded and edited by Caitlin Hartland. Our music is by The Night Driver and our sound was mixed by MJ Interactive.